May I invite your attention to the book of Job, chapter 1. You follow in your copies as we read the first five verses of chapter 1. Job at chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that, that endures forever. Guys, as you may expect, the book opens um, with an introduction or by introducing us to, to the hero. Uh, of course, his name being Job. And, and even in these first five verses, there are, there, there are hints, there are um, suggestions, there are instructions, I think, for us as you watch him uh, confront all that life throws at him. And so hopefully uh, we can walk away, uh, even from these opening verses, with, with some more uh, helpful biblical instruction about how to, how to confront all that life throws at us. I, I want to look at this text um, under three headings. Uh, the first being an ordinary hero, which is somewhat of an oxymoron. Heroes aren't known to be ordinary, but... The first heading is an ordinary hero. A, uh, the second heading is a surprising arch enemy. And then the third heading being a, um, a crucial distinction. And we'll try to lift, lift those things out of, this, out of this brief paragraph. First of all, we, we get to meet the hero. And um, in this first uh, bit of information that we get about him, there's nothing ordinary about him. He is a, a sheik in the land of the east that is, um, that is so rich that his estate is, um, is virtually a, a self-contained city. He's almost a city-state uh, himself. Uh, he is from the land of Uz, but where is that? <laughs> we don't know where Uz is, but it sounds a little bit like Oz, which has caused some commentators to suggest that this really isn't a, an, his, an historical event, that it's just a fairy tale, like, like the Wizard of Oz. Um, I, I'm not one of those. I do think this is history. But because of this, this, this land uh, that is almost make-believe, um, some have suggested that this is, not, this is not an historical event. You know, we, we all know about the land of Oz, uh, and its famous wizard, 
And, and there's, a, there's a similarity, there's, a, there's a one very significant similarity between the Wizard of Oz and the Sufferer of Uz. You, you recall, I know, surely you've seen the Wizard of Oz, but the wizard, the wizard in the Emerald City, he turns out in the end to be no real wizard at all. He's only a man, and, and, and a very pitiful man at that. And though when we first meet Job, there's, there's almost this, this wizard-like quality to him. He's got all this money and all of this family, etc., etc. But all too soon we find out that he's merely human. He is, um, he's another one of us sharing in... Uh, Sharing deeply in the human experience, um, he has all of his miserable frailty and his human failure exposed, dragged out into the open for the whole world to look at and to see. And, and at that point, his wealth can't help him. In fact, in fact he loses all of his wealth. So he's, um, he's reduced. He's reduced um, to, to a mere mortal. There's, there's no more pedestals. There's no more Superman cape. Um, once all of that wealth is stripped away from him, we find in a lot of ways he's just like, he's just like the Wizard of Oz. He's, um, he's just a man, and at some points a very pitiful one at that. There's a couple of lessons there already, ladies and gentlemen, and, and one of the things that you need to know about suffering is that suffering has a way of doing that to us. It has a way of exposing us. It, it has a way of um, stripping away all the veneer, all of the facade, and, um, and leaving us with a very difficult realization that we're nothing special. That's the, the first little lesson, but from the very outset, ladies and gentlemen, of this book, you've got to understand that this book and, and my series on this book, it's for people who are down in the trenches um, this is not for a series or a book for the, for the high and the mighty. It's for people who, um, who have had a real taste of what life can dish out. It's for people who've got the dirt of responsibility underneath their nails. For, for people who's, um, who have a, a grit of, of reality on their brow, the, uh, the grind of accountability that's, that, that weighs them down. This is a book about straight talk, ladies and gentlemen, straight talk on coping with life as it is, not as we wish it were or wish it as it used to be in the sweet by and by. This is a book that is a classic on spiritual warfare. 
and, uh, and the magnitude of the warfare can be, is, is simply underscored by the depths to which Job fell from the heights that he used to occupy. You see, um, folks, among human beings, there are no wizards. None of us. None of us are wizards, ladies and gentlemen. Being human has a, has a ragged edge to it um, for all of us. It's a whole lot different from the, uh, from the foggy world of make-believe and, and, and theory. You know, uh, my wife and I visit um, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, um, quite frequently. We at least once a year, if not, Susie goes two or three times a year. Because we have children up there. We have a daughter that's up there. And, and um, so we visit them. And there, there was a hotel that we used to stay in that we really enjoyed, but it's kind of risen out of our price range. And uh, it was real close to the George Washington University campus. And um, it even had a, a metro stop right there. And it was an area called Foggy Bottom. <laughs> I mean, I have often wondered about the guy who named that area. I mean, was he drunk? Was he, was he in some kind of... Um, depressional stupor because he strolled through the area one night and said now here's a good name for this place foggy bottom and you know guys for some of us who are presently in the foggy bottom of of reality and life you know, some, sometimes we're tempted to, to respond to it with this irresponsible shrug of the shoulders because, because my, my life is so complex and what I face is so, mis- so messy that you can just put me down for somebody who's in, who's in the bottom. Down where it's foggy. And that, ladies and gentlemen... Is life. But the good news is that, that the approach of this book and, and, and my approach, um, you'll find it proactive. By that I mean this. Um, I, I said a little bit this, of this last week. This is not so much a series about suffering as it is a series about life. And and for those who live, for those of us who live on the, on the ragged edge, Job is our hero. Suddenly and inexplicably, everything's taken away from him. His, his wealth, his health, his family. He even gets attacked by terrorists. And, and in a blink of an eye, his life goes from being a life of immense blessing to one of, of a foggy bottom. And, and though you and I and Job may live there, even now or maybe one day soon, this is a book and this is a series about how to get out of there.
while we're in the foggy bottom, how do you, how do you cope with the foggy bottom without panic? And what's more importantly, how do you get out of there? You know, guys, um, there's a lot of people who reject Jesus, but nobody rejects Job. He, he's less of a saint than he, than he is just a, a, a comrade in arms. He's not someone to follow. I mean, who would want to follow Job? You don't want to follow him, but you want to listen to him. You want to listen to, to, to how he confronts all that life throws at him. And you want to listen pretty closely, especially when it's your turn. When it's your turn to have the dark night of the soul. So guys, make no mistake. Um, that is who the hero of this book is. He's no wizard. He's, he's just a man. Just like you and me. He, um, he's confused, maybe. He's disillusioned, probably. He's questioning. You bet. If a hero at all, he's a very ordinary hero. And that's somebody that I can, um, that I can relate to. The second heading, the second thing that I want you to see, and it's really not about this text, but it's so much a part of the book. And if you're unfamiliar with the book, you're going you're to come across this real soon. Because it has to do with his three friends that show up in the latter parts of chapter 2. And if you don't know anything about the book, the rest of the book is, no, just about the rest of this book, is a dialogue that takes place between, between Job and those three uh, friends of his, so-called friends. You know, guys, there, there's much about this book that is, that is shrouded in mystery. It's, um, its origin, its date, its location is all unknown to us. Um, the reason, it, it, traditionally, most scholars would suggest that the first book ever written uh, in the Bible was the book of Job, that it predates even the book of Genesis. And the reason that scholars give the book of Job um, its early date is because inside the book there is never a mention of Israel. There's no mention of uh, her temple or the Ten Commandments or the covenant or kings or prophets or scripture. There's no mention of any of that. Whereas in the rest of the Bible, you're going to get all this input about things like that. Not in this book. And then onto the scene steps three people who are, who are really hard to deal with. They're really hard to understand. So you see, not only is there this ancient feel to this book, that is, um, before time began, before the dawn of time, not only do you get that in this book, but there's something wild and raw about the content. Brought out, and, and, and the, the foil of this is, are these three counselors, these three friends of Job, 
that allowed Job to, to respond in, in, in this long dialogue. And, and another feature of the, of the mystery of the book is that the book is counterintuitive. By that, I, I, I mean this. Gang, Job is no religious figure. He's not a prophet, he's not a priest, he's not a preacher. He's just a simple man who suffered. And in the midst of his suffering, what he does is that he runs not toward religion, but away from it. You find him in the course of this book, not speaking in favor of religion, but opposing it at every turn. He's against it. A hero in the book of the Bible who's against religion? That's somewhat counterintuitive. You know, sometime, somebody this week sent me a, um, a YouTube and, um, and I noticed before I looked at it um, that it, it had like three and a half million hits. And um, somebody sent it again to me this morning. And it had over 16 million hits. I guess I looked at it on Tuesday. So from Tuesday to Sunday, some 13 million more hits on this thing. It's a wrap. Um, it's a rap by a guy who looks really legit, and the title of it is, and I'm not sure I've got the title correct, but uh, it's, it's pretty much the right title. The title is, Why I Hate Religion, But Love Jesus. Or Why I Love Jesus and Hate Religion. I forget the order, but you get the gist of the thing. Why I Hate Religion, But Why I Love Jesus. Job would have loved that video. Simply by suffering so enormously and by hanging on to dear life, Job has won the hearts of of all of us who, who have tasted pain. But interestingly, the solutions that he finds are not in religion. In fact, religion hurts him. Religion, as represented by these three friends that we're going to get to know. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, the villains in the book of Job, the the arch enemy, are the religionists. these, These loveless Pharisees that seek to counsel Job and end up making his pain far worse. You, you know the type. You know the ones who've got all the answers? Who've got everything figured out? And so they've got all these answers for you as you're trying to cope with what it is that you're facing? You know, guys, um, in that regard you begin to see something of a similarity between this book and its hero and Jesus Christ. 
um, and, and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, because ladies and gentlemen, the gospel too is counterintuitive. Just think about this, guys. Jesus did not take initially, or really at all in his ministry, did not take the gospel to the Gentiles. But he, he went straight for Jerusalem, straight to the heart of the religious establishment. Because that was his arch enemy too, the religious establishment. He went to the place where, where, where the people had all the answers. And that's what he battled most of his life. Why is it that, that Jesus takes on the religious establishment? Well, I'm not real sure, but I've got a suggestion for you. I want to suggest it's because that the beauty of the gospel is best seen not, not when it clashes with some cult. But the beauty of the gospel is best seen when it is brought into direct opposition with a, with a subtle distortion of itself. When it's compared with the knockoff. When it's compared to the synthetic. That's when it's the most beautiful. Job's friends and the religion that they represent, they talk a lot about getting what's coming to you. And, and, and they talk about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. And the Christian gospel says that the only bootstraps in the Christian life is the cross. Interestingly, the place where the beauty of the gospel is most needed today is in the church. The gospel is forever beautiful. It's the church that's ugly. You know that place that has all the answers? Got everything figured out? You know, our culture seems to pit those two against each other. Why else would 16 million people go look at a YouTube about entitled Why I Hate the Church, But I Love Jesus? There's a story I got to tell, and my wife is going to cringe. She hadn't heard it yet, but I, I guarantee I'll get spoken to between services. Um, but I can get away with it this one, and it's the second one that'll be it'll be changed. But it's a story that's told by Philip Yancey, and I think it's in his book entitled um, "The Jesus I Never Met" or "The Jesus I Never Knew" or something like that. But apparently, Philip Yancey was some kind of counselor type. And um, he said that uh, on one occasion, a prostitute came to see him, a prostitute who was, as he said, in wretched straits, homeless, sick, and unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. And through her sobs, this prostitute tells Yancey that she, the mother had been renting out her two-year-old daughter. Um, she was renting her out 
to men who were interested in some kinky stuff. And she told Yancey that she made more by renting her daughter, her two-year-old daughter out for an hour than she could make in an entire night's work. And she wanted to say, I've got to do it because I've got to have the money to support my drug habit. Nancy said, I, I, I was reeling as I listened to this. He said, first of all, this young woman didn't know that I was under law to report what she was doing because we are, we are required to report every case of child abuse. You know, Penn State learned that the hard way. But he, did, he said, I didn't know what to say to her. He said, finally, I said, well, have you, have you thought about going to a church and asking for help? And Yancey said, I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. And she replied by saying, church? Why would I go there? I mean... I already feel bad enough about myself. They'll just make me feel worse. You know about that place, don't you? Where all those people have all the answers. Those loveless Pharisees that just want to tell you, You're getting what you deserve. Ladies and gentlemen, um, that's that's what Job contains at every turn. There's there's one other point that that I want you to see, and it has to do with with a crucial distinction. And with this we'll quit, but... It's a it's another whiff of the gospel that's found in verse one. And it's um it's summed up in the word blameless. Do you see? And that man was blameless and, and, and upright. You see that? Guys, the haunting question for mankind that, that seems to dog their steps, at every, dog, their, dog them at every step, this gnawing insecurity of, does God approve of me? Um, is God pleased with me? Am I right with God? Well, this book tells us that, that he was pleased with Job. Okay, uh, that then if that is possible, then how? Well, guys, listen to a crucial distinction. It begins with a solid grasp of this little fact, this little distinction, that being blameless is not quite the same thing as being guiltless. Guiltless means that that I have done no wrong, that there's no sin, that I'm innocent. Blameless means it's something far more mysterious, far more complex, because it means that no, no matter how horrible are all of my offenses, that somehow all of the charges against me have been dropped. 
It's, it's, like, it's like the psalmist says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. It doesn't say he doesn't have any iniquity. It just says that the Lord found a way not to count it against him. Oh my goodness, there's plenty of iniquity. My, my. But this text doesn't say that Job was guiltless. It says he was blameless. It says that that somehow God has found a way to set me free. Gang, the, the gospel does not say that my relationship with God is based on my fine, upstanding life. Nor does the gospel say that once I become a Christian, I'll never sin again. What it does promise us is forgiveness for my sin. It doesn't ignore my sin. It doesn't wink at my sin. It doesn't suggest that God said, oh, just kidding. Oh, no. The sin's got to be dealt with. And God has found a way to deal with mine. Ladies and gentlemen, where did we get this idea that only good people go to heaven? I don't know where you got that. Because the New Testament, um, Romans chapter 4, Paul says, and God justifies the ungodly. (laughs) Who does God justify? He justifies ungodly folk. You know, like are filling this room. It's, it's like, you've heard me read this before in the doxology or in the, in the uh, benediction. It, it, it's like this. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Guys, God has promised to forgive. But make no mistake about it. There is a lot of sin to forgive. From each of us. My part is simply to believe that. Guys, Job is the story of an Old Testament believer. You see it in verse 5 when he prays for his kids before the book is over. Um, You're going to see him pray like Jesus prayed in Luke 23 uh, because he's going to pray for these three friends of his. He's going to pray, Father, forgive them because they they did not know what they were doing. Job is, is, is a believer who somehow intuitively grasped and accepted this, this astounding message called the gospel. And, and, and he, he accepted it so much so that when he was tempted uh, to the very uttermost, at a, at a point of breaking, he still held on to it firmly against all odds. Under attack, Job groaned, yes. He wailed, yes. He doubted, yes. He fell into depression, yes. He screamed like an infuriated animal, yes. 
He even sinned, yes. And yet when it came to this one point regarding the settled fact of his status, an irreproachable blamelessness before the Lord God Almighty, he refused to budge one inch. Because this is the man who had somehow figured out that doing good things and adding to what God offered was not the way to be reconciled to God. Gang, if God accepts us at all, and he does, he accepts us wholeheartedly. And he covers us completely with the spotless robe of the Lamb of God's finished work. And that robe does not come in gray. It only comes in dazzling white. And you either have that robe or you don't. But if you were seated here this morning and you realize I don't have that robe, it can be gotten by one trip to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. I'll close real quick, but um, there's a story that Mike Mason, the guy I mentioned last week, uh, Mike Mason tells about a period in his life um, where he was in the darkest depression. He couldn't He couldn't shake the sense that somehow God was mad at him. So one morning he was walking on the beach and he he looked down and he saw a children's valentine lying in the sand. He bent over and he picked up the valentine and and the valentine simply said, you're okay with me, valentine. So he took it home to his wife and his wife, knowing of his depression, took it out of his hand, took a pen and wrote down on the bottom, love, comma, God. You're all right with me, Valentine. Love God. Isn't it funny, ladies and gentlemen, how a person can be a Christian and not and not enjoy the gospel? Isn't it funny that Jesus Christ can live inside of us in the person of his spirit, and yet we not enjoy that? Maybe it's not so funny. Maybe it's not so strange. You know, we've only had this gospel for 2,000 years. <laughs> and that's, a, that's not a very long time to assimilate the, the incredible reality of inexhaustible mercy and eternal life. This gospel, it turns out, is not only good news. It's far better news than we ever dreamed. It's a gospel that says, based on the merits of Christ. Don't miss that part. Based on the merits and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jimmy Young is blameless.
My dear friends, you may be guilty of a lot of horrible, ugly things, and I'm sorry. But there's one thing that you must never be guilty of. Don't ever be guilty of refusing the forgiveness offered you in Christ Jesus. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, remind us again that that living in the foggy bottom has a route out and it's um, it's not by pulling myself up by the bootstraps. But it is, a, uh, it is a race to Christ Jesus. So would you remind us of all that as we continue our study of this book. And we commit ourselves to that in Jesus' name.